Uh, probably okay to, to keep going. Okay. Welcome, this is Zim Nogora telling us about his research, contributions to research. He's been a deacon for five years, and uh, this is part of week three of Research in Democracy. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, so uh, this is obviously a little bit of a restart for, for those who um, missed uh, the, the uh, initial part that wasn't recorded. Uh, so I, I'm uh, just providing a little bit of an overview of, of who I am, what I do in my research, um, and so on. So um, I, I arrived at Deakin in 2016, uh, and uh, my work at Deakin really builds on, on, on stuff I did during my doctorate, things I did during my, my postdocs. And broadly speaking, that work uh, is concerned with kind of the functional operations of democracy. I understand that you guys are, are, are talking a lot about democracy, and my work has been uh, thinking about how democracy, the nuts and bolts of it, uh, plays out in practice. And for me, that uh, is centered on party systems. So I, I, I kind of uh, i am a little bit obsessed with political parties, how they interact with each other. Uh, that's basically what we understand by the party system. So a party system is a configuration of, of political parties that interact and they produce particular um, outcomes, whether that be uh, policy or quality of democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and those political parties, their interactions, what I'm calling the party system, is structured by uh, an overarching framework of rules. Uh, and those rules are called the constitution. And the constitution in this sense is, is basically the, the, the set of uh, rules, but also norms that structure how parties interact, uh, but also how individuals interact uh, with the political organs uh, in, 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 the, in the political system. Uh, so my, my research really does focus mainly on um, uh, political parties and how they interact, uh, competition within political parties, uh, and how constitutions structure um, uh, party systems and their outcomes. Uh, and that work is uh, comparative, so I kind of look at uh, several particular countries. So I, I, I'm interested in Australia. Uh, I'm interested in the United States. Uh, I'm interested in the United Kingdom and Nigeria. Those are, if you like, the countries that I know quite well. Uh, I also do large end data work, and that means that I, I look at um, a, a body of countries and compare their outcomes in, in the terms we're talking about. So, for example, one of my uh, current projects looks at party systems in Africa. So we have a data set of 45 countries, and we're interested in the differences among the party systems in the region and what that means for outcomes that we care about, uh, such as economic growth or the quality of democracy, et cetera, et cetera. So a couple of my, um, let me just say a little bit more about two of the strands of work that I've committed a lot of time to in the past few years. I'm gonna share a screen. Um, uh, firstly, I'm gonna share a screen uh, that, uh, pulls up this book, Parties and Party Systems by Giovanni Sartori. Now, this book is um, the seminal work in the comparative study of party systems. Giovanni Sartori wrote it in 1976. The second edition is in 2005. The latest edition is in 2016. It's still a classic, one of the most cited classics in comparative politics. Um, in that book, Sartori distinguishes a lot of um, uh, the material that we that has seeped into common language when it comes to um, our discussions of party systems and party politics. So, for example, Sartori was one of the first to really conceptually define the two-party system. His predecessor, Maurice Duverger, 
had come up with a notion of it, but Sartori really gave it an analytical edge. Um, he distinguished different classes of, um, of, of democratic party system. So we have the moderate pluralism type, polarized pluralism. These are all categories that Sartori introduced, which have been used to describe uh, party systems such as um, Italy, which is often described as polarized pluralism, moderate pluralism is Germany. Um, the two-party system perhaps includes Australia, certainly includes Malta and the United States and so on. Uh, so the categorization of party systems is largely a Sartorian um, uh, generated activity. Uh, and so one of the things I've been doing is to try and uh, understand whether we can measure the extent to which uh, a party system changes over time within the parameters of this framework. So if we were to think about um, the Australian party system or the British party system or the French party system, and we were to say one is more stable than the other, or one is more changeable or fluid than the other. What do we mean by that? How do we measure that? Uh, and on that basis, we can then do some interesting things. So, for example, one of the um, uh, standard hypotheses that social scientists, particularly in politics, like to talk about is whether stability is a good thing or a bad thing, or political stability. Uh, the problem is that political stability is often defined in all sorts of contradictory, um, vague ways. Um, and if we have a, a measure of party system change, then maybe we can actually measure political stability in one of its senses in quite a rigorous way, and then we can ascertain whether uh, political stability in this sense is good for economic growth, whether it's good for uh, the quality of democracy, et cetera, et cetera. So measuring uh, stability of a party system is, is, is important for practical purposes. So one of the projects I've been involved with is um, trying to devise a framework for measuring the stability of a party system in terms of the Sartori framework. Uh, so that's, that's, if you like, the first project I wanted to flag. The second project I want to flag is um, also, um, it's kind of inspired a little bit by another Sartori book, which I will um, identify here. One second. Um, uh, okay, can you see this book, Comparative Constitutional Engineering? Yes, I can. Yes, okay. Yes. Okay, so this is the... Um, this is the other Sartori book that uh, I want to talk about. Um, and so it's called An Inquiry into Structures, Incentives, and Outcomes. And Sartori wrote it probably um, about 20 years after he wrote Parties and Party Systems. And its purpose was to try and uh, work out what constitutional structures generated the best sorts of party systems for governance. So. He was taking one step back and saying, okay, well, we understand party systems and their impact on the quality of democracy. How can we understand the determinants of, of those party systems? So he wrote this book, Comparative Constitutional Engineering, which in political science is one of the um, uh, path-breaking books in what's called constitutional engineering. The phrase is, is, is actually quite controversial because there are some people uh, not so much these days, but if you go back 20, 30 years, uh, a lot of people who kind of think that a constitution isn't something you can design. It's something that emerges organically. So there's no point in trying to foist one 
on a, a country or, or its people because they'll just reject it, a bit like um, an organism rejects a foreign body. Now, that, that um, view uh, resonates with, with, with um, another literature on foreign interventions into other countries and so on, right? I mean, we, we hear about uh, people saying things like uh, democracy in, f imposed on, on, in Iraq or Afghanistan is impossible. It needs to merge organically. Um, anyway, Sartori's um, project here was a bit of a rebuttal against that. His argument was not that culture, history, um, and so on don't matter, but rather that despite that, even taking those as a given, we can design better institutions if we understand the relationship between uh, structures, incentives, and outcomes, hence the subtitle for, for the book. Uh, and so he, did this, he thinks about, you know, what structures are we talking about? What incentives do they generate and what, what outcomes do they produce? Uh, and the book is organized around um, uh, constitutional designs for lawmaking, uh, where there are basically three types, presidentialism, uh, parliamentarism, and semi-presidentialism. Uh, and then there's also constitutional designs for the allocation of power over space. Uh, it's sort of what we might call jurisdictional design. Uh, and there we have two main types, federalism uh, and unitarism. And there are other kind of constitutional questions you might ask. But if we think about it in, in, in terms of how party systems work, the two most important questions are, how do we set up lawmaking systems and how do we divide power over space? Uh, and, and those are the two central questions that, that motivate Sartori's, Sartori's project there. And what he tries to do is, as well as understanding these different setups, he explains when there might be good for, for different types of countries, develops sort of really sharp propositions there. Uh, and inspired by this book, uh, one of the projects I've been doing is to ask the question, how do we design a constitution, understood in these ways, for a democracy that transforms over time? So the democracy is not just a set of properties and, and, and principles and, and peoples uh, at a point in time. It's um, an evolving system. Uh, and that raises uh, a number of, 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 of tricky, thorny questions that receive not too much attention in Sartori's book, but I think are becoming really relevant in the kinds of uh, democracies that we live in today, uh, where we see, uh, for reasons such as migration, uh, preference change, uh, democratic transition, we see a lot of uh, fundamentals of, of a political system undergoing radical change. Uh, and this means that the institutions at a point in time may not necessarily be the ideal ones for that country over time. Uh, so solving this, um, what we might call intertemporal design problem, is, 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 is a complicated exercise. Uh, so one of the projects uh, that I've been working on is, is, is trying to think through how we can come up with designs that work well for countries uh, at a point in time, but also over time. Uh, let me give an example. So we have a new democracy um, uh, that's just emerged from uh, a civil war. Uh, societal groups are uh, very uh, hateful of each other. There's little trust. Um, this is actually, if we think about it, 
the normal condition for most new democracies. Now, over time, uh, the most pressing problem for that country is likely to evolve. So uh, at the earliest stage, it's all about building interpersonal trust, intergroup trust, um, making the society uh, feel a sense of unity. And then maybe over time, the problems move to issues such as how do we develop an economy? Uh, how do we build infrastructure? How do we um, create a strong state? Um, and you want to think about, well, how can you design a constitution that's good for the first set of problems, but also good for the second set of problems? Uh, the problem is the literature would suggest that those two sets of problems require two very different kinds of constitutions, right? Um, and so there's kind of three options that spring into your head. The first is to design a constitution that's ideal for the initial state of the country. And that would be a constitution that introduces measures such as proportional representation, federalism, inclusive institutions. All of this stuff is really good at enabling and fostering reconciliation. But it's not necessarily ideal for the tasks of state building, modernization, creating um, uh, 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 rapid economic development, where you might actually want a very different set of structures. So you can design for the first period. You can design for the second period. Or you can have, if you like, um, an intermediate solution. Uh, or, and this is kind of the argument that I'm trying to develop, um, you can introduce constitutional triggers, right? So after a certain period of time, there's a, a constitutional convention where you redesign aspects of your constitution. Uh, and this is built into, into the way that the political system unfolds. So there's all sorts of... Um, issues that arise uh, and, and questions that you might want to grapple with uh, when you come up with suggestions that are, if you like, dynamic like that. Um, but this is, I think, a very important set of questions for um, political scientists, constitutional lawyers, others in this kind of intellectual terrain to, to think about. So those are the two projects I wanted to mention uh, because I think they, they, they build nicely on the main themes that you cover in, in this unit. Um, uh, if you're interested in this kind of thinking, uh, I do run a, um, a, a master's level course called Political Competition, which deals with um, party systems and constitutions. And we kind of look at different party system types. We look at different constitutional designs. Uh, we talk about things such as party system change uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, so I also teach in this space as, as well. Uh, Andrew, I was intending on stopping there. Is that all right? Oh, yes. For opening it up for questions, if, if there are any. Great. I've found it fascinating. Uh, do we have questions from students? Um, no. Uh, just watching the time. Very interesting. No questions, though. Um, later in the unit, we talk, we compare uh, Kass Mudder, who looks at party systems and yep. populism, and contrast that to Ernesto um, Laclaus, much more continental approach. Yeah, I see you frowning. That no. sounds great. No, 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 no. It's, it's, a, it's an intriguing comparison. Uh, I think that's, that's a great choice. Not your cup of tea, I, I know. But... 
the, the idea is to look at the literature about populism, the, the contending, completely different uh, approaches to what it is, how it fits. Uh, populism is not only about party systems, it's also about the media, uh, the law, um, discourse, analysis, generally. But um, I was fascinated to hear your point about what amounts to constructivism, this dynamic through time, which is the classic criticism of Sartori and, well, especially du Duvasha. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Andrew, you're spot on with that one. Uh, and that is that is an important criticism, not only of Sartori, but also um, of the tenor of the times. You know, a lot of the writing that emerged during that time is um, static. Uh, and I think, um, you know, consistent with what you're saying about populism and, and the changing way we think about democracy, uh, the extent to which democracies can change over time has become very apparent in recent in recent years. Mm. Um, and I think probably there was a golden era in, <laughs> in maybe the 70s or something where uh, things seemed more stable uh, at the moment where I think very clearly in a period of turbulence in many countries. So I think we have a sense of of the changeability of stuff, uh, and that probably wasn't the case 40 years ago. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure many countries would qualify as stable in the 1970s. Just to think about the Vietnam War protest. Well, <laughs> Nixon. Uh, <laughs> I, I I agree. With, I agree with you. I mean, like there was um, a kind of turbulence, right? There was a kind of turbulence. Um, that that um, you know uh, commentators talk about uh, a lot, but if we think about the sorts of things that political scientists are deeply interested in, uh, partisan identity, uh, social class, the, the the sociology underlying politics, there was a lot of stability. Um, those fundamentals are are have broken down in in um, recent decades. So I was recently. I was reviewing a book that was looking at the British case. Um, and so in the 1960s, about 13% um, uh, of United Kingdom electors, voters, uh, switched uh, their party voting uh, in that decade. Now that's about 60%. Uh, so we, 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 we sort of see that people approach politics very differently on their own terms, with a lot less um, guidance from elites, a lot more skepticism of structure. Um, so I think it's 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 a, it's a more um, fickle environment in which we operate. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Mm. I think we need to cut things short. We could go on for a great a long time. I look uh, forward to meeting up next time, um, pursuing you more about a lot of this. We've got a lecture to get back to. Okay, I'll leave you to it. But thank you for the opportunity to, to talk to your class. And, and I wish uh, all the students best of luck in their studies. No, oh, thank you for locating your current interests in our literature. That's My pleasure. Great. Take care, all. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Uh, we can now I'll just take this back to this window. Um, Share, I'll go back to sharing the screen. Does anyone have any questions they want to ask me rather than asking Zim directly? Yeah, sorry, I just missed him. <laughs> um, I guess I was 
interested in just in terms of comparative like analysis in general with politics and party systems and what he was talking about I'm always interested I guess in how people decide to compare them like against what what kinds of values because if you've got party systems or different kinds of societies that seem to be sort of I don't know it always seems so values-based and really normative like how do you is it possible to have an objective kind of analysis in that in that kind of area? I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah. Well, you know, I, I, now I, I see your chat. I should have pulled up the chat before. Uh, I saw Bethany's very interesting no questions though, and then I just focused on Zim, so I didn't catch your your chat. Um, I would I would recommend the. Um, huge collection of databases at the University of Gothenburg where they look at um, varieties of democracy it's called uh, it's it's uh, vastly bigger than than Freedom House in Washington where they um, rank countries according to how free or unfree they are on um, they quantify it according to uh, criteria that they spell out and then they analyze every country. In Gothenburg, they, the Freedom House judgments of every country's freedom or unfreedom is, is but one. And there are many, many databases that they pull together with all sorts of uh, information about trust, about surveys, uh, all manner of things. Um, which is a, I, I suppose what I'm saying is that there are many researchers who have grappled with exactly this issue about metrics and norms. Um, and there's, there's so many ways of trying to deal with that. And the, the um, variety of democracy uh, collection of databases is very, very helpful in trying to think through that. Um, we could have quizzed Zim about that. I'm sure he's completely familiar with all of that. Good question though. Um, it plays to, I suppose it plays to the contrast between quantitative metrics versus qualitative reflection on norms, philosophies, and so on. And uh, that tension between quantitative and qualitative analysis is very long-standing, and many, many people have attempted to grapple with it. So uh, you're definitely onto something. Um, and it's, yeah, can't really go into it. It's sort of endless, really. So uh, on that, point let's let's turn to uh, social democracy uh, my task now is to try to get through this lecture in in 35 minutes so that you have time to uh, just so you have time to go through the discussion questions and grapple with this yourself can you all see the um, slide up on that screen? 
Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, some way then, um, I can still see the chat, but I can't see the. Ah, there it is. Okay, good. All right. Um, now what? I'll go to the right. Social democracy. Last week we talked about both Republican and liberal traditions of thought about democracy. Today we move on to social democracy, uh, which moves from the liberal individual to the collective society. Uh, the timeline for thinking about this is from um, 1869, the founding of a social democratic party in Germany, which was for a long time the largest and best organized uh, labor movement, uh, highest unionization rates up until the First World War. And uh, many of the early ideas about social democracy were uh, amongst Germans. Uh, we move on to think about the association between the welfare state and capitalism from about the time of the Great Depression through to the 1970s. We look at uh, Jester Espin Anderson's work on uh, what he called decommodification and uh, social citizenship. Esping Anderson has been enormously influential amongst people comparing welfare states in different countries. Then uh, bring this up to date with some reflections on neoliberalism and new labor. In many ways, parties of the center left, including the Democrats in America, uh, the social Democrats in Europe, Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, uh, as well as labor in Australia, New Zealand, and um, England, have been more successful at privatizing and bringing in market-oriented public policies than the centre-right have been. It's extraordinary, really, that new labour, as Tony Blair called it, have brought in um, a lot more market-oriented approaches to delivering welfare services. Uh, consequently, the uh, environmentalists, green parties, have taken up much of this older social democratic agenda. Uh, about participatory democracy, uh, decommodification. Um, the Australian Greens are much stronger on education, much stronger support for universities than uh, the Australian Labor Party, for example. But we look here at um, an American senator um, whose name escapes me. She has a Spanish background from New York. Uh, she's talking about environmentalism as the, the, well, an updated version of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, which is the beginning of social democracy or social democratic ideas about a welfare state in America. So this alliance between environmentalism and social democracy is uh, a new interesting thing. And at the end, I point out some recent uh, reflections from a journalist, George Megalogenis, talking about deficit spending has come back in a big way because of COVID. 
and because of responses to the global financial crisis. Okay, so Germany, 1869. Both Marx and Engels were members of the Social Democratic Party. Uh, Marx, for example, was very, very critical of the Gotha program as a member of this party and his uh, comments in the sideline, in the margins of this program led Engels to publish his critique of the Gotha program in 1891. Um, so this sort of fluidity about what is social democracy before communism, it's very important, before Lenin and these others. So the person in the top right-hand corner, you see Marx, Engels, Lenin across the top, the top right corner is Karl Kautsky. Karl Kautsky and the person behind him, uh, Eduard Bernstein, uh, below him, Eduard Bernstein. Kautsky and Bernstein were the literary um, executors of all the published materials, all the paperwork uh, left by Marx and Engels. They, they were in charge of the copyright, uh, they were the literary executives of the Marx and Engels work. Uh, Kautsky became uh, what was known as an orthodox Marxist within the party, had famous battles with Lenin about whether or not Germany should support the First World War. Lenin was very opposed to social democracy going to war. He, he thought it's just the generals are taking the workers out to be slaughtered. Uh, so a social democrat labor movement should oppose the war. Whereas Kautsky realized that it was popular with the people and a more parliamentary socialism should uh, embrace this, the idea of a soldier citizen, that it was the way forward to responsible uh, control over the government. Eduard Bernstein was more to the right within the Social Democrats, a big follower of the Fabians in England, um, and more interested in what he called evolutionary socialism. Kalski thought the revolution would accumulate gradually, uh, and then the big change would happen and private property would be ended and the class society would end with it consistent with Marx, but Bernstein was more, let's just wait and see how things turn out. So socialism was a much more sort of provisional idea for Bernstein. Uh, moving along to 1920, after the, the Bolsheviks uh, break, their breakthrough in uh, post-war Soviet Union, just as the First of all, Russia, just as the, the rations were running out, serious poverty uh, and, and major riots, the Bolsheviks overturned the democratic government after the fall of the Tsar and uh, started a revolution and civil war broke out. This um, action, Lenin was largely a, a journalist. His writing is very easy to understand. Uh, he wasn't really much of a theorist. He was a doer, an act, 
action-oriented political leader and journalist. Uh, all of them were journalists at the time. Uh, they all started parties, they were editors, but it was a very common pattern. Uh, but after Lenin actually did something, he wasn't waiting around for elections, he actually took over the government, took over the, the mass media, and started uh, nationalizing all the all of production uh, and ending class society. This inspired communist parties around the world from about 1920 onward. Um, it saw labor parties everywhere move to the left. It's when parties, social democratic parties and labor parties brought in their socialization plank into the main parties. It's because of Lenin. Um, so during the 1920s, uh, the, 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 the communist alternative was sitting there festering. And in the 1930s, it came to a head because there was no unemployment in Russia. And yet here in the developed countries, unemployment was a very big threat uh, that, and the communist parties were becoming larger. The communist parties, uh, reached their, their zenith of popularity during the Second World War because America and Britain were in alliance with Russia, the Communist Party, Russia, against Germany. So Communist parties everywhere were somewhat uh, legitimate as opponents of fascism and upholders of democracy. Um, it was during that time, the late 30s, during the 1940s, that, that Maynard Keynes became very important. Oh, sorry, I've left out um, Rosa Luxemburg, uh, another German from about 1920, and uh, left from the left, left of Kautsky, uh, not quite a Leninist, but really hoped that social democracy could continue the parliamentary path and achieve uh, nationalization sooner rather than sometime in the distant future or whenever the, the economy collapsed in Kalski's model. Uh, Rosenberg was more of a theorist, but somewhere between Kalski and Lenin, you might say. Uh, she was executed by the uh, fascist thugs in 1920. It's important to bring up some of the prominent uh, women in a, in a very male, uh, otherwise very male setting. Uh, going back to Keynes in the 1930s. So he was the professor of economics at Cambridge, a thoroughly mainstream, respectable economist, advisor to governments, uh, very influential uh, at the end of the Second World War, um, highly critical of the end of the First World War, the economics of reparations, he thought was very destructive, and he influenced a, a far more um, progressive resolution to, to the Second World War. But in the late 1930s, he came up with this argument that governments should go into debt in recessions because no one else is going to spend when the, the prospects of the future are so bleak, that a government has to buck the trend and governments 
should not balance their books every year. They should balance their books across the economic cycle. So if you go into debt during recession, then when boom times come back, you calm down the boom by repaying the debt from the, from the recession previously. So you lift up the economy in recession and you calm it down in a boom. The idea was to smooth out the boom bust cycle, that the government could act contrary to the cycle. And this was formally worked out in, in series of books and became very influential on FDR in America and all parties of the rich countries and around the world during the 1950s and 60s. Um, Beveridge was an English uh, economist, very influential on the formation of a welfare state in England, also in Australia. Uh, just a brief note about the red-green deal in Sweden in 1932. This was led by or negotiated between the um, finance minister of the Social Democratic Party, who uh, had uncommonly taken a PhD himself, with a PhD in linguistics, but he um, was completely up to date with all of the economic thinking and basically pushed for Keynesianism before Keynes did. Um, and it, it was a, on the basis of this uh, green, um, they're called green, they were small farmers who had broken away from the, from the Conservative Party, these very small dairy farmers in the main. Um, many of their sons went off to the, work, to the city and worked in the factories. And they were plain speaking ordinary people uh, who did a deal with the workers movement in the cities. Um, you uh, don't um, allow uh, protection against imports, you charge money for imports, which will make food more expensive for the workers, but protect farmers' jobs. And in return, the farmers agreed to allow deficit spending on unemployment benefits. And the Swedes started spending heavily on unemployment benefits from about 1936. It took a while to get it all underway, but they were beginning to do this. Uh, almost a decade before uh, any other country in the world. And it's because of Ernst Wieghorst, and I'll talk about them in a minute. Before we get to that, um, I just want to take you through this graph, um, which is an update of a graph developed by a, a friend of mine, a colleague, Jeff Dow. And Jeff found the work of Vito Tanzi and uh, Ludger Schucknecht, 2000. These two were uh, neoliberal economists, very upset about the extent of public spending and the fact that it hadn't really declined since its peak in um, 1990. Um, just looking at those, the blue one is Sweden, which got to uh, two-thirds of the economy uh, went through public spending. This includes 
all taxes for defence, schools, public transport and so on, as well as social insurance, which Australia has uh, superannuation that all governments, all people pay, except the money goes off to private funds for the most part, sometimes industry cooperative funds. But in Sweden, uh, the, the money for superannuation retirement was much larger and it all went into public funds, these four uh, investment funds. And later, the insurance from investment funds, the public investment funds, would cover um, unemployment, sickness, uh, time off work to look after children, and uh, old age. And you would you would go on to it if if you lost your job, got old, got sick, uh, you had children at home. You would go on to a um, a pension that was eighty percent of your wage before that. So the funding for that went through public hands, and that's why uh, the public sector in Sweden is so much larger. But and and so Australia here. In, in which colour is Australia? Green, you see coming along here. Um, about a bit below 30%, a bit above the 30%, whereas Sweden is um, 50 to 60% for most of the time. Almost the difference between 30% and 60% is social, is social insurance. So they have all the taxation that we have. Then on top of that, they have social insurance. The uh, other countries have degrees of this social insurance. We have Medicare and we have superannuation, which is a, a degree of this. Uh, France is another one, the brown one here. It's also very high. They have pretty extensive uh, welfare for everybody. But if you look at the, the average in, in the dark black, the 17 countries of these developed countries that are part of the OECD, you can see that up until the First World War, taxes and public expenditure went to about 10%. It's increased during the war. By 1930, it was getting up to 20%, trundles along. It increases a bit after the war, but the big increase came uh, during the 1970s and by 1980. Since then, it's actually gone up and hasn't really declined. Neoliberalism has not really cut back on the welfare state. But what it has done is to decrease the difference between the top and the bottom, the difference now is much narrower. All governments, uh, treasury departments, welfare departments have similar levels between the mid 30s and the mid 50s as a proportion of the whole economy. Now, this sort of comparison of welfare states, oh, sorry, one more point. Um, This looks at, this is another take on the effects of the welfare state and the, and the distribution of income. Uh, 
Thomas or Thomas Piketty has looked at the top 1%. Most comparisons of wealth have looked at how much the bottom 50% are and how much the top 10%, and you get these increasing um, inequalities. But if you look at the 1%, it's a much sharper picture of the effects of inflation. So if you own property, as inflation goes up, your property becomes more valuable. And this increases faster than wages increase. And so you get um, the 1% being very wealthy. You can see this uh, collapsed during the 1930s, 40s, um, because of collapses in the economy. Uh, the major collapse during the 40s because so much property was destroyed during the war throughout Europe. Um, in the 50s and 60s, low inflation meant, and at the same time as increased spending on education and, and welfare, uh, meant that the distribution of wealth um, continued to improve, uh, reaching its um, the lowest wealth for the 1% in the mid mid-1970s, then um, the inflation caused by the uh, uh, oil crisis, the, the um, OPEC raising of the price of oil brought inflation at the same time as unemployment and, and then this brought back inflation and then the wealthy became even more wealthy. Despite the welfare state not really declining that much in this period, the wealth of the rich became much stronger because of inflation. And this contrast between high unemployment at a period when the economy is booming, when the economy goes into bust, inflation goes down. When the economy is booming, inflation goes up. And yet and unemployment goes down in a boom and goes up in a recession. And yet, with the oil crisis, you had both high inflation and high employment. And Keynesianism could not explain this because Keynesianism, the deficit spending over the, over, the, over the economic cycle, is based on a, a single nation, a single economy. Uh, what, what it, it can't really appreciate the inflationary effects of the oil shakes in Saudi Arabia restricting supply of oil and raising, inflating the, the price of oil. They're so angry over American support for Israel that they decided to restrict oil and, and cause drastic inflation. Since this period, the Chinese exporting very cheap uh, products has brought low inflation back into the international economy. Uh, this is why governments have started to spend very freely on deficit, on deficit spending since the global financial crisis. I'll end with that, come back to that point at the end. Um, I just want to talk, talk to you more about Jöste Espin Andersen, this Danish scholar who compares welfare states. 
in building on uh, that's Ernst Wigfors in top right, the, the Swedish fire, uh, treasurer from the 1930s. It was 1933 through to 1949, he was treasurer. Efting Anderson defines welfare as the decommodification of labour. So the, in labour, we rent our time out to an employer. But our labour is not actually a commodity. It's not like buying and selling a car because it's connected to a person. You're renting out your time for wages. Uh, so decommodifying means that you provide support for people independent of their standing in the labour market. Now, recently, Australian politicians have said you should be able to access health care uh, on the basis of your citizenship rather than on the basis of your credit card or your, your standing, how much money you've got. So if you have decommodified labour, this means that access to unemployment benefits is not conditional on proving that you are um, a worthy job seeker, that you're making every effort to seek work. You get benefits because you paid a lot of money into a superannuation fund and all people get this money. High benefits but high taxes go hand in hand with a right of citizenship. Um, this universal welfare was, or social citizenship was an extension of political citizenship in the way that social democracy is an extension of liberal democracy, liberal politics, you know, one person, one vote. In social democracy, you have one person, one benefit, uh, that all people are entitled to uh, a reasonable income if they get sick, or they get old, or they have kids, or they're unemployed. That these high taxes and high benefits um, are provided with no questions asked. You don't have to fill out extensive forms and prove that you are poor enough for the privilege of these benefits. You are a citizen, you have no job, here's the money. Uh, you don't have to police this. It's, it's uh, much cheaper to administer. Uh, but the most important part of this social citizenship and social democracy is that it promotes solidarity you don't have one group of the population receiving benefits but not paying taxes because they have low incomes and the other people who um, have high incomes pay taxes and get no benefits. So then the benefit receivers resent all the paperwork they have to fill out and dealing with Centrelink or whatever and the people paying taxes suspect that the benefit receivers are bludgers or they're rotting the system or there's something going wrong here. So you have this two classes of people. It sows division. And that's what you get with targeted welfare. Um, you get a lot of suspicion of the state and of, of dull bludgers and whatever. But with universal welfare, more social citizenship, um, it promotes social solidarity. That's what you get with high taxes a more cohesive society. Um, Arthur Oaken, American economist, won Nobel Prize for economics. He talks about, he puts this very well, contrasts the domain of dollars 
in the market versus the realm of rights in politics. Um, Thomas Marshall in England talked about um, more rights for more people spreading from legal citizenship in 1800 through political citizenship during the 1800s by the First World War. And then since the Great Depression, uh, social citizenship. Um, Wieckforsch uh, in a more social democratic vein compared to Marshall's more liberal democratic uh, thinking. Wieckforsch talked about political democracy, social democracy, and then moving on to economic democracy. The Wieckforsch imagined socialism happening through a democratization of workplaces and investment in, in um, manufacturing and the whole economy. Uh, that super profits would be taxed or the proportion of super profits would be issued as um, shares to a, a special fund that would be governed by uh, people who are elected by the workforce who would decide how these shares would be um, reinvested or what they would do with all this money that came from the super profits. So this is a, a vision of moving on from social democracy to economic democracy. Um, so that's the, the Swedish uh, vision, some of the English ideas in the 1940s. Come the 1980s, the crisis of Keynesianism, this international economy, the, the globalization meant that you had global forces on inflation and instability. Um, and parties of the left turned to market-oriented solutions. The state uh, should not be rowing the ship of state, actually delivering um, unemployment benefits or hospital care or schooling and so on. Instead, the, the, gov the government should be just the great helmsman at the back of the boat, great big oar, deciding the direction. And the actual rowing, the delivering the services, could be subcontracted out to private hospitals, private uh, people looking for work, businesses that help you find jobs, uh, all the different private providers for welfare services according to government settings. And the, uh, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, uh, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, as well as um, Hawke and Keating, who were actually ahead of the others by five to 10 years. Um, so this market-oriented social liberalism in the parties of the centre-left displaced uh, social citizenship and, and decommodification. This social liberalism was in effect re-commodifying labour. Uh, and so you have um, various schemes to, to prove that you are a worthy recipient of unemployment benefits because you are actively seeking work. Um, to defend Blair and the others, um, they did take up a critique against the welfare state being a bureaucratic uh, nightmare and imagined that um, 
not-for-profit uh, volunteer organisations would fill the gap. If the state stops delivering it and 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 um, subcontracts out these, these services could be delivered not necessarily by private corporations, but by voluntary organisations. Uh, an example of that in Geelong is Diversitas, a collection of, of uh, ethnic community groups form this uh, company which now bids for contracts to supply services and there are many of these groups around so there was a sort of a, a third way imagined between markets corporations and on the other hand state bureaucracy you would have this sort of social capital and volunteering in between since then Environmentalism has become uh, a new reason for reforming capitalism, and you, this is clearly demonstrated in many of the con uh, columnists in, in News Corp, uh, the Australian, the Telegraph, uh, a whole series of them. Um, the uh, commentators in England, um, the, the lead person on the TV show um, Top Gear, I can't remember his name, is very, very inclined to mock environmentalism um, as a threat to capitalism. So the Greens are much like the old Social Democrats. They're to the left of New Labour. They've um, taken up some of these ideas about uh, decommodification and social citizenship. Um, so alliances between Social Democrats and Greens have formed governments in Scandinavia and Germany. Um, in Canada, Australia, United States, environmentalists have taken up policy positions abandoned by Labour or centre-left parties. They advocate direct democracy, activism, the decommodification of Labour and social citizenship, which is more rights of citizenship for more people in more areas. And just to finish up here, we've, um, since the global financial crisis and the spread of low inflation and falling interest rates around the world, Treasury departments in many rich countries have dropped the uh, blanket requirement for austerity and accepted public deficit spending. And this is not just Rudd and Gillard. Uh, many countries went in for deficit spending after the global financial crisis and even more so, more clearly in the last year or so uh, during the pandemic. Uh, George Megalogenis talks about this uh, in Australia, reflecting on the developments around the world. So low inflation and low interest rates have seen many rich countries rack up very extensive public deficit spending, um, perhaps twice the levels in Australia. The Australian government um, is a pretty tentative in the press today to talk about uh, restricting job seeker um, and calls for it to be go back to what it was. Um, much of Europe has spent much, much more on their part and their public deficit is much greater because financiers everywhere are completely confident in funding these governments that when 
the uh, economies recover, they can pretty readily pay off this money. The anxiety that it's going to be our great-grandchildren who pay this off is very uh, uh, exaggerated. Um, and what's his name? Uh, Quiggan uh, argues that the deficit in Australia is likely to be paid off within about 10 years with very little effort. It's the return to recover, return to strong growth will pay it off quite painlessly uh, in a gradual fashion over 10 to 15 years. So just to finish up, this recent talk about deficit spending is very technocratic. The sort of thing that Megalogenus goes through is about elites, economists in Treasury departments there's little connection to social movements the way there was in the 1930s and 40s. There is some effort to, to, to popularise this idea of a Green New Deal. Um, Biden is, is attempting to revive um, Franklin D. Roosevelt's images of, of uh, deficit spending in the past. But, um, I can't see, uh, I'm a bit skeptical about just how much, how, how democratic it all is, uh, how much decommodification de of labour may see a politicising of citizenship, the politics and democracy around um, our choices. Yeah. yeah. Wait and see. So, just to review everything, uh, we talked about the social origins of social democracy in Germany, the golden age of social democracy and strong expansion of the public sector from 1940 to 1970s. Noted the rise of inequality since 1970, has seen social democracy lose its way. There's no longer any talk about economic democracy. Uh, there's no longer a pursuit of full employment. Everybody is focusing on maintaining low inflation. The, a market-conforming social liberalism has displaced the decommodification and social citizenship of social democracy. Although the Greens are attempting to take up elements of social democracy. So next week, uh, we'll move on to talk about democracy and populism. And with that, I can um, How do I I think I have to I have to stop sharing. And that screen over this one open I'm just opening the website with the discussion questions which are weekly topics schools of thought social democracy I now share the screen again
share. Now, I'll just make that larger. Make that larger. Social democracy. We've got three questions. Is the social democratic age of the 20th century no longer relevant for the 21st century? Jackson has something to say about that. Or does it need to merge with environmentalism to remain relevant? That's John Keane's argument. Uh, is this provisional utopia feasible vision? Jackson has something to say about this. Esther Anderson talks about it. Um, Vigforsch described social democracy as a provisional utopia. So the minimum readings, uh, Nicholas Ponce-Vignon, it's a short one-page article about distribution of wealth. Um, you've got this graph that was just in the slide. Uh, and then you've got the preface from Esping Anderson's Politics Against Markets. And the wider reading Looks at Thomas Marshall, um, Oaken, I can't remember his first name, the big trade-off. Uh, Jackson looks more fully at social democracy as an ideology. And then John Keane talks about the slow death of social democracy and is much more oriented towards environmentalism. Um, then you have the full chapter by Esping Anderson for wider reading. So I now turn to um, dividing you up into groups. There are two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen people. I think that's going to be three groups of six. And um, Breakout rooms. Yes. Uh, three groups. Can you all see what I'm doing here on the screen? Hello. Time, time for everyone to turn on your microphones. I'm about to automatically assign you into three different groups. So group Sorry, one. Just quickly, Andrew, where exactly are the questions? I'm trying to look for them on, on the, what topic are you in? Social democracy. Can't find it for some reason. Can you see it on the shared screen? Yes. Okay. It's just easier for us to cut and paste the question when you get the groups allocated, that's all. It's in the week two traditional schools of thought, and then if you scroll down, it says social democracy. It's not in the third topic, if that makes sense. 
I mean the weekly topics and not there. And then traditional schools of thought. Oh, yes, yes. Week two, did you say? Yeah. And then you start. Ah, okay. Yeah. Going to week three. I didn't go for eight topics. I went for sections and then topics within the sections. I've got them. Thank you. Okay. All right. Um, it's now 11 minutes past. Let's uh, end this at, at 25 past. That gives you a little over 10 minutes to talk to each other. And then each group reports back on, on what you've thought about this question. Now this is random. You don't know which of the three you'll be in. Group one looks at question one. Group two looks at question two. Group three, question three. And I'll see you back here at 25 past. Okay, let's go create.
Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. I think everyone's back. So we start with um, group one on the social democratic golden age. Yep. Um, so I'll be speaking for this uh, for our group. Um, so we kind of said that there is going to be a new golden age sort of for social democracy because of the influence of new technologies like green technology and, you know, wind turbines, electric EV vehicles, these, these will create more jobs and they'll create more, I guess, of a social infrastructure and investment towards those jobs, I think. And then there'll also be, I guess, on that, a more of a probably appeal to a wider stratified grouping because social media and obviously the media as well has made uh, different groupings kind of, uh, I guess, class conscious in a sort of way and we need to kind of appeal uh, appeal to the wider community to uh, be on board with these social democratic policies that'll be uh, going uh, positioning for uh, i guess more towards the environment in the future and new technologies are surrounding that so what how do you see this happening i think corporate investment will be the first part uh, part of the course of uh, investment into these new technologies through the corporate sector, private sector. And I guess on that, that will kind of connect um, these private groups to a wider group, a wider good, I suppose, to, um, uh, to protect the environment and also protect uh, these new jobs and new um, forms of investment, I guess, as well. Okay. I, I read a, uh, a moral philosophy professor of law at Harvard, uh, Michael Sandel, he, he delivered these lectures in, in the BBC, the Reese Lectures. In those lectures, and, and many other books, he argued very strongly against the Kyoto Protocol and the idea that we should have a, um, a carbon price, a price on carbon. So that corporations can invest in in carbon in, in new technology to reduce the carbon emissions, or decide no, that's too expensive. We'll just pay the fine for emitting carbon. So they can make these fine-tuned decisions about how much they invest and how much they pay the fine, according to their exact. This is the, the market-oriented approach to urging investors to spend more on all sorts of things, not just wind farms and electric vehicles, but every process in every or throughout industry. Sandow was 
very, very angry about this and said, it's not um, about degrees of harm. It's about calling out what is wrong. But this is pollution. It's harmful. It, 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 you can't buy your way out of it. It's like um, if, if you have a fine for throwing a, an empty can away on your bushwalk, you just throw it in the bush. Um, and there's a fine, oh, who cares? I can pay the fine, I don't care. It's wrong. It's, it's, just the, it's just the morally wrong thing to do. So we shouldn't be calling it carbon emissions, carbon trading. We should be calling it pollution. Um, yeah, I think the problem is that most states or most corporations, they don't feel enticed enough to want to invest in anything so far. There's, it's tracking that way in, in new technology, green technology. But they want to try to have it both ways. They want to have their, their gas-powered coal, you know, coal gas-powered stations, right? Yeah. And then also move towards um, uh, these clean technologies because they know it's just inevitable. But I think if governments put through policies that demanded direct investment by corporations, that could be no social democratic policies for the future. The point of my extended rant (laughs) (laughs) that carbon trading is market-oriented, whereas a moral stance on pollution is much more political. It's much more about rights and citizenship and democracy, whereas carbon trading is about the markets and investment and degrees of harm and degrees of change and so on. Can there also be a morality there for society too, I suppose? If, if, it, if, it, you know, if you had a carbon tax, that's kind of one incentive to the, to the, to the further, to further the, the, uh, the goals of, of clean technology, I suppose. How how would you legislate morality or like include morality in social policy where you you have some parties um, which label it as pollution or, um, you know, with the whole thing with climate change causing environmental destruction? um, I think that's obviously morally wrong and it's positioned as morally wrong, but it's not really effective and it hasn't been effective. Like the only example of it really being labelled as pollution that I can see is in California um, when they put in a lot of pollution laws and smog testing and things like that, um, which was effective, but that was really led by um, the government actually implementing that policy. But it wasn't really led by the private sector. Yeah, well, my, my point only is that morals, morality, visions, these are, the, these are the core of politics. It's what motivates movements and gets people angry or you know, concerned or talking to each other. But the calculations about costs and benefits in the market is, is not about politics. It can be politicised. If you democratize it, control over it, but mostly it, it's about people's own money. But isn't politics in itself kind of the means to allocate resources? So it's kind of it, it's it, politicking is to allocate certain resources to this group of people, this group of people, 
So couldn't the government creating new incentives be part of that kind of general broad definition of politics? Yeah, that's a liberal definition of politics. Yeah. Leads to a procedural model of democracy. A a, um, a social model of democracy uh, involves morality much more. It doesn't completely okay. disregard distribution. Distribution is important. Um, but a vision, a, moral, a morality, politics is inescapably normative and moral. Um, so you think about like murder, abortion, and so on. These rights and limits on rights are about uh, the morality, the morality of religion, the morality of bodily integrity, personal freedom. These are moral issues. Um, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say like the um, that's. That's really good, and I think that it is a moral issue, and it should be represented that way. But how are you going to change the consciousness of people to perceive it as morally wrong? Like, how is that going to be uh, displayed? Because it's it's really displayed through, I guess, through people. Like, you can teach your kids about it, but that's another generation. But really, like, when you have people being seen things through maybe the media it's difficult to persuade people because of the corporate interest in that. And a political party adopting um, a moral stance on climate change doesn't really affect the majority of people. Um, well, I disagree, actually. Um, perhaps not in Australia, but uh, there are uh, plenty of political movements. And i Obviously, persuading people is, is the stuff of political movements, social movements, political movements, political parties. Um, the um, Conservative Party in Britain took a very strong stance pro-environmentalism um, in the, when was it, uh, mid-1980s. Margaret Thatcher was very uh, green. Um, we have to do something about climate change. Um, similarly, uh, the, the uh, big businesses in Germany and Scandinavia and England can all see the market advantage and all support this moral campaign. The problem in Australia is that so many of the farmers and so many of the miners see only loss and disadvantage, and so they undermine it. But there is a similar political movement here. It just doesn't, the conditions, circumstances are just so different. But um, it's not the usual, it's not the most common pattern, certainly not in Europe. Well, yeah, I, I think um, in Europe it is different. Um, I, I was pointing more towards Australia, specifically with our media landscape. It's different in Europe, especially Nordic nations. Um, even tax, for example, is different. Cool, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's very different. Um, but I, I think what I mean is 
I, I guess if you, if you did a poll of everybody in Australia on climate change, you'd probably have the majority of people wanting climate action, but that's not betrayed through politics. I think it's I think it's true. I think we're the latest with sixty percent of people want. You know, do you want more or less pollution? Less. Thank you. <laughs> you ask the question that way, the, the answer is a lot obvious. Yeah, I think the problem is it's become politicised through the media. It, like you turn like Murdoch, look at Murdoch. Um, you know, to a degree, other other channels as well have kind of politicised the issue of climate change, and it's become more of a uh, an idea that is uh, is, uh, is is left wing at wing or you know overly progressive, whereas mm-hmm. it should be it should be more of a common good. Uh, that's thrown, that's driven by every political party or political institution. But the interests of those media companies are not to put uh, to uh, push push that. It's to push the idea that it's 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 dangerous to uh, or it, it it's just it's just not as not as um big of a deal, I suppose. Mm. Well, yeah, I'm thinking a lot. I don't think News Corporation actually has a specific interest in fighting uh, environmentalism. But I think it's these, in a way, as a way of um, attracting readers. So it's like this confected outrage about these ridiculous green policies. Um, and I'm thinking of the shock jocks in Sydney or com- the columnists in the News Corp papers. This confected outrage is a way of it's a business model for attracting readers. That's that's what they have an interest in. Anything that's emotive or, or controversial can attract readers. And so and Fox News, News Corp, um, that's their interest is in attracting readers rather than anti-environmentalism necessarily. Uh, I guess the more what I was saying is like it attracts advertisers too. It attracts readers, but it also attracts advertisers to well, the, that, that content. Yeah. The, ad, the advertisers follow the readers. The, if you have a large readership, the advertisers will come because they want to they want to reach those readers. Well, wouldn't it be beneficial for them to to write um, for like for climate action if the majority of people are for climate action and if they wanted to engage a larger audience? Well, if the majority are sort of lukewarm about it, yeah, it's probably a good idea. It doesn't really attract readers. But if you have this minority that are very passionate about it, you attract a strong readership and you can sell that to the, to the advertisers. Um, um, just in terms of the action, like the question and like the the golden age of the 20th century and what you were talking about with is it a moral question or a, or a, a question of um, you know profit and markets um, in terms of social democracy in the 20th century my understanding is that things like workers rights and you know um, women's rights and and the, you know the social citizenship and the right to um, sort of benefits of living in a society and that kind of stuff. Um, mm. To me, like those were initially moral questions. If they they weren't, there wasn't any kind of legislation, and there wasn't necessarily any kind of 
profit motive motive to to for for companies and factories and you know capitalists to think about the rights of their workers and to spend money on providing them with welfare or the state to provide welfare but um i guess if keynesianism came around to try to prevent another depression to me that kind of seems it was less about moral rights and more about just trying to prevent another um period of yeah um depression where nobody was making money like wouldn't it be like it's kind of a chicken and the egg situation where it's like does public consciousness kind of come first or is that driven by growing awareness that you're no longer profiting off of the old system that you can't gain anything from that and then i think in the 21st century it's going to become increasingly obvious to even people who maybe in rural communities are the ones who are facing it firsthand that mm-hmm. you know environmental destruction and 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 climate change is having very material <laughs> tangible negative effects on their um their their wealth and their their ability to profit so i don't know would that i feel like just in terms of answering the question i feel i think that it it there is um a chance that because of the the nature of climate change that it's you know indiscriminate and that it it is going to have tangible effects on people's material kind of wealth um i think it could push a, a new i don't know golden age is a bit strong but a new push for the kind of less reliance on markets and more reliance on yeah government. I, I i follow each each thing you've said and I, it all makes sense um i'm just noticing i think you were in group three is that right Yes, but I'm also doing environmental politics <laughs> as a unit. So. <laughs> oh yeah, but this provisional utopia, um, the feasibility—it's pretty closely related to the relevance of the golden age. And so I can see that you're bringing up this this idea. Um, one, one comment that Keynes. Mainstream economists and, and strongly oriented towards the sort of a technocratic elite economists' uh, expertise about how to smooth out booms and busts, how do you deal with unemployment and high inflation and interest rates and so on. But a, a vision has to be more than that. Um, the economic circumstances shift, and we're noting the difference between um, Thatcher closing down the coal mines and attacking the coal unions, uh, promoting a, a green future in Britain in the 1980s. Whereas in Australia, Barnaby Joyce and uh, what's his name, Canavan, are protecting the Australian coal mines. Um, which has also divided the union movement. The union, some of the unions want to protect those jobs and others don't. 
the Labor is very divided about that and, and the LNP is, is delighted to promote that division while they protect coal miners' jobs in remote areas. One could say, Andrew, it's Belinda here, one could say that Labor lost the last election over that. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if they're in between this rock and a hard place. If, if so many of our politicians have lost their spot, their top spot, because of this divisive issue. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a mining area, my brother lives in a mining area, mm-hmm. and you don't appeal to those people, you it's committing it's committing political suicide. They're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's a really contentious issue, and it's not going away. Mining mining brings votes. Mining brings a lot of money, despite the fact that us city people, in inverted commas, are you know are taking a stance on. Um, climate emergencies. Um, that is not the the rhetoric that's that's floating around in these regional areas that and of which mining is the backbone in particular. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the Labor Party is torn between competing against the Greens in inner city electorates, where the Greens have become you know re, um, what do you call very strong majorities for Labor, and the Greens are now threatening them in the inner city areas and they've got to <laughs> deal with that and so they're going much greener for their general policies in order to shore up those those electorates and then yeah regional like newcastle and regional queensland that's where my brother is i had one in queensland and, and i've got one in newcastle mm. and and it's you you would not get a look in i mean that's why barnaby joyce hello i mean yeah is the electorate above that, but um, it's it's. I think Labor are going to be in a lot of trouble over this. They are, they have been, and they are. Yes, it's yeah. It's one of those um, political calculations that are difficult. Um, can we hear from people in, in Group Two? Does social democracy need to merge with environmentalism to remain relevant? The basic things I got out of the readings were that life requires the right to dignity and survival. So the absence of a healthy environment sort of threatens the tenets of social democracy and the redistribution of wealth. So social democracy needs to sort of adapt to include environmental concerns as well as the redistribution of wealth or... Or it will become similar to like laissez-faire capitalism. So social democracy must merge with environmentalism, I think. Yeah. Um, I was in group two, Andrew, as well. And this is on the back of what I was just saying. Um, oh. That, that they, they can merge. or they, It's ideal to merge, and that, that's all very well. But we're back at this rock and a hard place type area again with labour social yep. democracy and their values, you know? Yeah, I, personally, I suspect that uh, environmentalism and its more old-fashioned social democratic vision is particularly difficult in Australia because our population lives in very dispersed um Standalone houses. Our cities are very, very spread out. 
because so many people live in bungalows in one family to one house. And this is uncommon around the world. In most of South America, uh, East Coast of America, um, all of Europe, most of Asia, uh, people live in um, high-rise apartments. You have several families in one high-rise. The heating of these places is vastly more efficient. You heat the bottom and then the heat goes up through all the rest. Um, Much more efficient. And then public transport is vastly more more efficient. You have a bus stop and there's 100 families within a couple hundred metres. It makes sense to run the buses all the time. But our Australian suburbs, public transport is, wow, it's very difficult. We're very car-oriented and our heating is very inefficient. Um, We're way, really behind it. It's going to be much more expensive to make uh, Australia environmentally friendly than in much of the rest of the world. So this merger is going to be quite difficult in Australia. Um, but who knows? I mean, that's a, that's a deterministic situation. Uh, political leaders can be very creative, can come up with different ways of trying to merge these um, regional miners with, with the um, inner city green. Who knows? I think Joel Fitzgibbon is one of the key Labour Party politicians that sort of argues against the merger. Mm-hmm. He is attracted a lot of attention, left the front bench over this. Um, so one way that might be possible is if the mines became sites for wind farms. You know, massive wind farms and uh, battery. So the people who are working there, they just work on different, in a different industry, the same place. They could decentralize uh, the green economy. And that's the sort of thing that, that, I mean, they keep talking about, we have to, we have to make sure that uh, the losers of the of necessary change that the losers are looked after, and that's a social democratic approach to dealing with major economic change. You maintain everybody's rights to to continue to live their life. Economic changes happen that are that are not your fault, that are beyond your control. Again, if that was pitched by um, Bill Shorten on the last election, um, maybe they would have had part of a chance. But, you know, he, he appealed to, to the green masses of the cities, as we are talking about before, but mm. as soon as he went rural and to these regional areas, he said something different and, and people people just lost lost trust in, in the, the Labor Party. Yeah, yeah. I have an honours student who studied this unit last year. Um, looking at populism 
and uh, I've got to contact him. He's um, he's about to do a comparison of um, the stop and start Adani movements. You remember when Bill, uh, Bob Brown led this this uh, group of people from the south, Sydney and Melbourne, and they arrived in the area where the Adani mine is about to be started. Um, and they were booed on the streets and there was big movement against them. The local newspaper, uh, News Corp paper, and the, there was a um, start Adani movement got going in the same region, same time as the stop Adani turned up. So Shorten was not alone in underestimating the, the backlash in the regional areas. Um, Bob Brown assumed that they'd be well received and that he was sort of leading this sort of movement that would attract its own attention, own momentum, but that didn't happen. Um, it's possible, you know, you know when um, the first shutdowns happened and people suddenly lost their jobs and turned up at unemployment benefits offices. Um, uh, there was no talk of, of bludges. There was suddenly, we have to sort this out. This is not, this is no one's personal problem. Um, it's a social, general issue. Um, so rather than leaving people out to dry, you make sure that the whole society carries everyone. And now, I mean, now, the people in regional mining areas, uh, justifiably very worried that they're going to have to carry this personally. If they get a sack, you know, there's major forces in movement and they're just, you know, out, just left to, to go unemployed. No one is, is looking after them. For, for things that are not their personal faults, you know, they've done nothing wrong. They're not lazy. They're not, you know, bludging. <laughs> Just want a job, just want to work. And that's a so the yeah, this recession, COVID recession has, has changed many things. It's amazing how quickly that can happen. So, you know, my pessimism about the uh, uh, housing in Australia and, and car fixation on cars, public transport is just not possible. Uh, you know, very quickly can be completely irrelevant. Um, COVID showed that. So, yeah, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. Utopia or social democracy, a green social democracy, may suddenly become far more feasible. Um, Do we have more people from um, either group two or group three? Apologies for not really being very um, methodical about this, but any other contributions? Who Who was the nominated person to talk for group two? Did you decide that? Was it 
a few of us, sorry, Andrew, <clears throat> um, we all um, had a go of doing something different. Um, I had a look at that chapter that you referred to in the question. Yeah. Um, I'm just conscious of time, sorry. Um, I've got to be elsewhere for another Zoom. Uh, open? Yes. Arthur. Sorry? Arthur Oaken, yes. I didn't find, I don't know whether that was an error when put in that for that question. I didn't find that particularly relevant to that question. But I know um, some others looked at um, that conversation piece, which I think was more more sort of pertinent to the question. But um, sorry, I was just kind of rattling off on, on the discussion leading from group one to group two, thinking that I'd kind of answered us for group two. Okay. Um, Oaken's discussion builds on that graph, uh, this graph about the extent of public decision-making about spending in the economy, the, the extent of markets versus the extent of politics, politics against markets. And he, um, He, he argues against the idea that markets are about efficiency and politics is about equality. And you don't have to lose one to gain more of the other. It, it's possible to have both at once. So the liberal idea is that we can't have high... The economy cannot afford higher welfare. It'll bankrupt us. Too much equality will... will um, sent us broke. That's the trade-off thinking. Um, the social democratic thinking is that uh, you can have both at once and that equality can actually promote greater efficiency. That it's efficiency of the whole system rather than um, private individual efficiency. Um, um, I just wanted to ask, is that maybe a part of the the move, not nowadays necessarily, but there's like an increasing kind of push to try to find ways of um, incorporating kind of social and environmental values into economic evaluations in terms of like internalizing externalities and that kind of stuff with new thing with these things like you know pollution permits to try to to try to incorporate those values into economic language and and rationality that is sort yes. of the same vein yes so um michael sandel's cr critique of carbon trading is that Carbon trading is based on trade-offs. You have more investment and um, less fines, or you have less investment and more fines. People, have, uh, investors can make these own trade-offs themselves. If, however, you um, attempt to, to marry, marry them together, you don't think of trade-offs, costs and benefits, Instead, you think about how the whole system works, then we need to promote green jobs that 
as uh, carbon carbon industries decline, um, the replacement industries. So that shift of the labour force out of declining industries into expanding industries needs to be supported across the board um, to make sure the labour market is more effective and more efficient for the whole economy, not just for individuals. <laughs> if you focus on individuals, you're back to the costs to trade-off thinking. But if you think about how the whole labour market movement, can, labour market can shift people out of declining industries and move them over into expanding industries, then um, spend a lot more on education and retraining, um, for example. So, so more spending on, on the education will be benefit the economy rather than being a burden on the economy. We need to spend in order to promote this transition and to make sure that, that no individuals carry the cost of it and instead the whole society carries the cost of it. Socialise the costs of transition rather than privatising these risks and allowing individuals to just sink or swim. And that's a very long answer to yes. <laughs> Um, I'm also just wondering if that would help to shift. Uh, I feel like a big problem in, with um, trying to make markets more, you know, environmentally sustainable is that so many firms seem to operate with like a really short-term horizon kind of view. And if you were to, yeah, I guess socialize that, cause just like investing in education, it just seems such a long-term commitment. You, you wouldn't reap the benefits of that immediately. So trying to find ways to carry people through that that longer transition might be the answer, maybe? Yes, and this is the role of government. The longer term, the, the sharing out, the socialising of risk across many people, many industries, this is the purpose of government, um, which has suddenly come back in, during COVID. It's just extraordinary. Um, this, this austerity and trade-offs uh, rhetoric has, has been sidelined and replaced by uh, transitioning from, uh, from, from bust to boom, uh, thinking about um, green, the green economy, thinking about education. More so in um, countries where the governments are left centre. But even here now, the, the rhetoric is affecting uh, all governments various ways. Whether that will also uh, see as like a political movement around that, um, I haven't seen much of that, but perhaps it's in the offing particularly amongst green movements, I suppose. Hmm. Okay, I think I, oh, we've gone over time. Uh, next week, um, we'll talk about populism, 
moving right along, quite a uh, quick pace. Um, that's my final observation is I've really done my best to focus your attention on citizenship and democracy in this area rather than ideology. Remember that the, the focus is on rights and, and uh, domains or realms of rights. How many rights for how many people in what areas is, is what we've been thinking about. Um, along with the nature of politics, is it about who gets what, where, when and where? Uh, is it also about rights in new areas and new fields? Okay. Without any further ado, uh, there will be a recording of this available for you, anyone who wants to go back, also for the off-campus students. And um, I'll re we'll repeat this at uh, Geelong, Warren Ponds on Wednesday, hopefully, fingers crossed, face to face. But on Tuesday, that may have to be revised. We may have to have a, um, a Zoom meeting for Wednesday as well. But, uh, just have to watch the news, see what happens. And I'll see you all next week. Um, as usual, I'll remain online. Anybody who wants to hang back and ask me a question the way you might do outside the lecture theatre in the corridor. Thank you and see you next week. <laughs>